0: Hi, everyone, it's Chris Licerenco from Revolutions per Movie. The show is a completely independent affair, so if you feel like supporting the show, the best way is to go over to patreoncom Revolutions per Movie, where in exchange for your support, you can get weekly bonus Revolution per Movie episodes, stickers, membership cards. Upcoming guests include Ann Magnuson of Bongwater, Bob Burt of Sonic Youth and Pussy Galore, Jerry Kosali of Devo, and Homer Flynn of the Cryptic Corporation representing the band The Residents. So please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash revolutionspermovie. And thank you everyone for listening. Enjoy the show. My guest this week is Jack Perez. Jack has directed over a dozen feature films, including Indie Hits, Some Guy Who Kills People, which was executive produced by John Landis, La Cucaracha, the winner of the Best Feature at the Austin Film Festival, and The Big Empty, which was the winner at the AFI Film Fest for Best New Writer. He virtually invented the found-footage genre with his groundbreaking first feature, America's Deadliest Home Video, and wrote and directed the pop culture classic, Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus. His television directing credits include the pilot for Universal's Xena, Warrior Princess, Fox's unauthorized Brady Bunch, the final days in sci-fi's Blast Vegas, and Drone Wars. He's a recipient of awards for both writing and directing, receiving the critical praise of Roger Ebert, Ain't It Cool News, Fangoria, The Guardian, Film Threat, the LA Weekly, Empire Magazine, the Austin Chronicle, the New York Times, and me. And it is my great pleasure to welcome to Revolutions Per Movie, Jack Perez. Hi, Jack.
1: (laughs) Hi, Chris. Wow, that's a huge intro. I probably should have given you a shorter bio, I think. That's 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 a really ego... Ego-lifting pile. Yeah, but you got the goods. I mean, I had, (laughs) you know, I at
0: at the video store, in case people don't know, I owned a video store in Portland, Oregon called Clinton Street Video for 22 years. And I had a lot of your films on VHS and Mm. DVD. So I was familiar with your work um, as somebody who was just curating it, uh, curating the store. And your film, yeah. "Some Guy Who Kills People," just got reissued on Blu-ray.
1: Yeah, ter- yeah, Terrorvision just put it out, which is cool.
0: Yeah, they're incredible. They're kind of like the Criterion of horror movie cult fandom. Yeah, but the film "Some Guy Who Kills People" features two amazing performers who have also performed singing their own music in films. We have Barry Boswick, who was in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. And Karen Black, who sang in Nashville. And I wondered right. if you could tell a little bit about those two performers, because they're just so iconic and and mysterious to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm so glad you brought them up, because, you know, like, everybody in show business goes, oh, my friend, you know, they're talking about Robert De Niro, Bobby and I, blah, blah, blah. And um, it's definitely, my career has never, you know, hasn't been like that. But But with Barry and Karen, those were, like, two people who... I was so um, overjoyed to get to work with them uh, first in that one movie and also that they came to that movie. Uh, I had no idea. In other words, I didn't pursue Barry and Karen. They actually came into audition, which was weird. So in other words, I'm, I'm auditioning actors for all these different parts for this very low budget picture, even though Landis was executive producing, they still the movie didn't really have much money. And people are coming in and then all of a sudden, like Karen Black walks in, you know, and it was as a as a movie nut. um, You know, I had all of Karen Black's movies. You know, I was I was a huge fan. So Karen Black walks in and that was like, why are you auditioning? You know, Uh, you can have the part, you know, Uh, and the same thing with Barry. Barry came in and even though I wasn't like a. um, you know, I've seen Barry and all kinds of stuff. Megaforce! And, oh my
0: god! Uh, you've yeah, seen, have you seen?
1: Have you seen? Megaforce? Yeah, it was on Mystery Science
0: Theater <laughs> three thousand. Ah, uh, incredible! Uh,
1: Megaforce is n- not to be believed. But obviously, a wonderful actor. You played George Washington. I remember watching that TV movie as a kid, and <laughs> I can't remember if it's War and Remembrance or Winds of War. I think it's War and Rem- No wait, Is it Winds of War? They both sound. But anyway, boring. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> but he's he's but he auditioned too and was just like tore it up in the audition. And I became—I was very fortunate enough to actually um, connect with both of those people. Um, we just got along, you know, like really well. And, and I, I did become close with both of them. And it's funny—I remember being invited to Karen's birthday party after we wrapped that movie, and um, Ronnie Blakely was there. And they—she sang, and Karen sang, and they, and Karen loved to get up and like to sing old standards, you know, while somebody incredible. You know, Tinkled on the eye. And really, you could tell she was really, you know, she she considered herself a singer as well as an actor and really committed. You know, it wasn't like she was a dabbling singer. Um and Barry, too, you know, because of all of you know he did Greece, you know, he originated the Danny Zuko role on stage. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, no, he was the first Danny Zuko on uh on, on stage. If you type in original cast of Greece. Oh Grease. my god, okay. So wow. he comes from theater. And even though there's no singing uh, in some guy who kills people, I did a sci-fi movie after that, uh, which you know, the, one of the only one of the only joys of doing that movie was actually putting Barry in the movie as a old Las Vegas lounge singer, and that gave him an opportunity to like sing, you know, these old kind of like Sinatra-esque sort of um, standards, and that was really fun. And then again, he like takes to that like you know. You know, like a fish to water. That's his. He loves doing that. So both of them were are really were. You know, Barry's still alive. Karen unfortunately passed away, but they were. Karen was really funny, and uh, and Barry is just a a hoot. I got a finally got a chance to reconnect with him for this Blu-ray because I sat down and we did an interview together. And he's he's the same. He's just a nut, you know, in the best in the best way. So super cool. Like you want them to be cool, you know, they are they're just unique (laughs) performers. Yes. You know, they're, they're,
0: they're true kind of can't put your finger on it. What makes them unique? They're kind of off kilter, but they deliver and, and they never seem bored in the roles they're in. They just seem totally invested. I had a question about music in your films brought Barry in to do this part where he was a lounge singer. Right. How, when you're writing a script or, you know, getting ready to direct a film, how, how do you think about music entering your process or your, your writing or directing?
1: Well, I mean, truthfully, in most cases, unless music is in the movie, like in the case of this movie, Blast Vegas, you know, which is, again, this silly sci-fi supernatural sandstorm consumes Las Vegas and Barry plays this sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, a Gandalfian kind of like character who be- shepherds these kids through the through this calamity and then sacrifices himself. You know, it's all these things. But, but that's, that movie actually has a scene where he actually plays, you know, his character is established in a club room playing piano and singing. So in that particular case, you know, as with a musical times a million, you know, those songs have to be written, recorded, Uh, and then playback brought to set. And of course the actor has to learn these songs and then generally lip syncs like a music video, as you know, having done so many of those. Um, but in most of the movies I've done that music is never, never actually a part of the drama. the, The music comes in later in terms of score and most of the stuff that I do, um, is almost entirely orchestral score as opposed to, um, sort of, um, Incorporating pre existing tune, you know, rock or pop tunes or anything. Not uh, generally, like licensed yeah, music. Yeah, licensed music, usually because in most cases, those films just simply can't afford it. I mean, I remember thinking back on that once. I did this unauthorized Brady Bunch, The Final Days, which was a behind the scenes <laughs> look at the making of the blast episodes of The Brady, which actually was a lot of fun to do i bet and i actually go yeah
0: keep on keep on keep on well no i mean well it it it?
1: wasn't in there but i got to like build like the house and the kitchen and you know the backyard i mean i got i was a brady bunch fan so i got to do that um and what was funny is it was the only time where we like i fox produced it because they were making these sort of rip from the headlines sort of scandalous mow's and um When it came to Post, I was like, well, this is, you know, this is the middle 70s. You know, I had all these, like, ideas for music licensing. And they were like, yeah. So I had the Jackson 5. I had a couple of Jackson 5 tunes in there. I had Barry White in there. I had all these. For the first time, I had, like, real, you know, recognizable uh, songs that we could license that really did sort of complete the picture. But that's probably the only instance. Everything else has been score which is usually truthfully one of the last things that you do. So I generally don't go into a movie pre-thinking what the soundtrack or the score is going to be. Although I probably maybe when I was writing it or when I'm prepping it, I may be listening to things to to soundtracks or things that may ultimately, you know, may have some influence down the road. It's interesting that music doesn't
0: enter your process earlier because the film we're going to talk about, American Pop, which was directed by Ralph Bakshi in 1981, is the most forward-facing music film I've seen maybe ever in terms of access to the original tracks by the original recording artists, and it's just non-stop, pretty much wall-to-wall music. So what brought you to this film? Why did you want to pick this film out of any, any film to talk about?
1: Well, I was, you know, you're, you're sort of, um, you know, the, the sort of ground rules or the parameters of of this podcast obviously have to do with music, the importance of music or music playing a dominant uh, role in, in, in film. And obviously, you know, there's a load of musicals and um, I think maybe the you know, now that I think about it, you know, maybe this would be for another podcast. I, I I think about something like Topsy Turvy, which is for me a, a hugely important movie oh, it's for incredible. Me. That's incredible. That's clearly uh, worth discussing. But you know, I I also thought of something as silly as like the '76 version of A Star Is Born with Barbra Streisand and Chris Kasoverson, because that was sort of I saw that at when I was ten, and that made a huge impression. And the music is obviously. Uh, instrumental uh, into that to that story, but American pop I saw when I was 15 years old, and I saw I had not been exposed to Ralph Bakshi's animation prior to that. Um, actually, I'm wondering if I did because Lord of the Rings had come out. I, I I did go see Lord of the Rings, but but I don't think even at 15, even though I was already a movie nut, I was like I wasn't like a Ralph Bakshi follower i hadn't seen wizards i hadn't seen fritz the cat or hey good
0: looking wait 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 you didn't sneak in at 15 to see an x-rated animated fritz the no
1: cat. i saw fritz, <laughs> i saw i wish i did i mean i could never get away with it like i had friends who were tall did you ever have tall people who could lower their voice and say two tickets for you know two tickets for you know the hills have eyes i couldn't get i couldn't manage to get into that
0: i was so uptight <laughs> I, I i was a total chicken shit as a teenager. I. <laughs> I could not do that. I just was afraid of being I was busted. Too. And and it's like, what are they going to do? Nothing. Call the cops? They're not going to do either. Anything. A. They're going to be like, come in. We you know we don't care. Fill the seats, pay the price. But there was something about how uptight I was. I we we've talked about this before. You know, magazines like Fangoria yeah. and Famous Monsters and other things that showed still images of things that I wasn't allowed to see.
1: Yes, was
0: like my gateway into things like this, and American Pop was the same thing. I saw the trailer for it, and I was a little too young for it, and it kind of freaked me out.
1: Well, I mean, it kind of. I mean, that's the thing that's so interesting. My that movie, oddly, so I had seen Lord of the Rings. Um, It didn't, you know, even though visually it was, it was pretty stunning. I wasn't like a Tolkien fan, so it wasn't like a big. It wasn't a big experience for me. Um, right. But my parents actually made this a fa- American pop, a family movie night, which we would do from time to time in those days. Uh, they decided, like, let's go see this movie. And um, I actually had no idea what it was. And I don't think I was particularly even interested in the subject so much, because to me, it just seemed like, what is this? This, this just wasn't I mean, I was into monsters and, you know, like I. Uh, but what it what it ended up being was like a singularly um, a singular experience. In other words, I hadn't seen uh, uh, an adult animation that wasn't fantastical. That was just basically a straight ahead, essentially a drama and a very mature um, and oftentimes depressing. It's very bleak and, and violent and 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 sad and uh, yes. and and so it was this weird combination of an adult drama playing out in this very specific form of animation, which I couldn't quite put my finger on at the time yet, but I ultimately understood it to be rotoscoping. Can you
0: talk a bit about what rotoscoping is? Yeah,
1: r- rotoscoping is not actually rotoscoping is something that Ralph Bakshi ended up using a lot of. He first used it in Wizards uh, when he realized that he didn't have the budget to animate some of the more complex battle scenes and wizards. So it was actually easier to take pre-existing war scenes, whether they were from World War II movies or whatever. And and literally what rotoscoping is, is you take pre-existing film material or you shoot live action material, and then essentially the animators trace over each individual frame. And that way you create this extremely fluid, lifelike body movement. So you're not you're not an animator emulating somebody walking. You're actually tracing over somebody walking. And so okay. this, this technique actually is pretty old. The uh, uh, Max Fleischer, you know, who was responsible for Betty Boop and Popeye and later the uh, 1940s Superman oh, right. uh, cartoon. And even there was a movie as a kid I saw uh, that he did called Gulliver, an adaptation of Gulliver that used all used rotoscoping and uh, he sort of patented in the 30s and so if you look at some very particularly if you look at gulliver you look at superman and you can see these on youtube superman there's a fluidity and a real lifelike quality that is the same quality that you get in lord of the rings and ultimately in american pop that because ralph Bakshi was using the same technique funny enough disney when the when when the Fleischer's patent expired, they, they let it expire for some reason. Disney was like, "Great, we're going to use it." So Snow White uses rotoscoping, and so does Alice in Wonderland and Sleeping Beauty. And if you look at the if you look at the movements, one of the reasons why Snow White was so huge was because there was a, a reality to these, at least to the to Snow White and you know uh, Prince Charming and that whole thing. They looked real. They had a reality. It wasn't like other animation. So anyway, so this technique of tracing over you know, live action footage, um, this was a technique that Bak- Bakshi used almost entirely in American pop. And it works because you have the scene after scene of essentially just very untraditional anime, you, 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 people sitting around a table talking or just hanging out in an apartment is not something that you traditionally associate with an animated movie. right? And this is a lot of just like, you know, it's supposed to be a real, you know, squat in San Francisco, or here's somebody, you know, this is somebody shooting heroin in their apartment, or this is, right. you know, walking through Greenwich Park, you know, through Washington Square late at night, this is supposed to be happening. So that, I think that look. Uh, uh, made a huge impression, but I also feel like it was just a very emotional, it was an emotional story. Even before you even look at how the music is, obviously the whole movie is about this parallel between this, these four generations of immigrant Americans. Yes. And, and the music of the time as they go through it and the fact that they are musical, that, you know, the, the initial, child, you know, that flees from Russia with his mother, Zalmy, gets involved in vaudeville and has a knack for that and wants to be a singer. And then his son is a piano player. And then, you know, it goes, it just, there is this thing about the music being the only thing that matters. And, and that's, and I think the poster even uh, kind of like overstates it, but it's like, you know, all these dreams, all these, somebody's going to be a star. So it's the idea that that, yes. that these were a family that was always sort of musically oriented and aiming toward that kind of thing. It's a film about chance meetings and people just like
0: either falling in love because they're they just fall over each other in in a, in a space or they see each other out of the corner of the eye or they die because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time right. or they're they're injured in the war because they're they're in the back of a pantomime horse It's very complicated, and in terms of just jamming all this, all these storylines and what they want to tell about the history of America. Yes, you know, Senate hearings to war, many wars to popular culture to Prohibition, uh, prostitution, drug use. It's very ambitious and at times overstuffed. Yeah, definitely. But I think that. The rotoscoping technique helps soften some of that. A lot of the people that are rotoscoped are very traditional in terms of their look and dress is very brown, black, gray, white. Mm -hmm. And then everything in the background or surrounding them is purple faces, green hair, very strange choices. It's very unsettling. Yeah, At times, it reminded me of Yellow Submarine a bit. Like, we're going to heighten the the senses here a bit, you know. And also, yeah. I don't know if, if Bakshi was thinking, oh, this is kind of a stoner film. Like, the the planetarium is closed tonight, so let's get him in for
1: American <laughs> pop while they're high. Possibly. I mean, it's it's funny because I, I first experienced Fritz the Cat, which I think is one of the best stoner movies. Like, I can't tell you how many times I saw Fritz the Cat when I was at NYU, you know, high as a kite. Uh-huh. And that movie works... Incredibly well uh, when you're high, and um, it feels the movie feels like you're stoned anyway. I think what's interesting about American Pop is it actually plays out, as you said, as sort of this epic, often overstuffed but epic drama, that as it kind of moves into the fifties, yes, uh, and 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 into sort of like beatnik society, and then ultimately graduates into the psychedelic sixties, it becomes. Like at a certain point, like at like two thirds of the way through the movie, it becomes a stoner movie in that it's just because it's all drug related. The Tony, yes. character is just and everybody is is high, you know, and 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 so it's it's and to the point where you know his illegitimate son uh, is is a, a drug dealer. So right. drugs sort of like from the time they it's kind of Tony leaves, you know, uh, home. And goes to Kansas or whatever, uh, it becomes a drug movie. And drugs are like the a huge part. of it. So the movie takes on a very specific tone. But prior to that, it's more like Godfather 2. I mean, you have this, you know, he, he starts with this pogrom. It's like the Cossacks kill his father and he escapes to America with his mother. And he's, then his mother dies in the uh, Triangle you know, shirt, waist, factory, fire, you know? Oh, that's intense. And it's happening really fast. Right, it happens really fast. Yeah, yeah.
0: The film has a title sequence that is, I think it's a pretty amazing overture. A smash-up of Freebird and, you know, Glenn Miller's String of Pearls and Gershwin's I Got Rhythm and Joplin's Maple Leaf. Right. Then back into Freebird as an orchestral piece. And it was so confusing to me at first that I, didn't recognize Freebird. I was like, I know what what is that song? I recognize all these other things. And then right. bam, the film opens with like a traditional Ukrainian track. While all this stuff is happening, there's um title cards like right. a silent movie. Immediately people are being slaughtered. Right. right. They go to Brooklyn right. and <laughs> basically selling chorus slips as a child to raise money for his family. The mother dies, like you said, in the the triangle uh, shirtwaist factory fire. That's right. Then he's in World War One as he grows up, and he gets shot as a pantomime horse, that, that breaks up his singing career because he gets a wound to the throat, and that's the first twelve minutes of the film. Right.
1: <laughs> it's relentless and bleak. It is. It's, it's it's emotionally it's emotionally relentless, and it's like you said, and it's bleak and it's violent. And in a way, that's why I was kind of like really uh really taken with it as a kid because it really was hitting me on an emotional level it, and i I was trying to think of adult dramas you know that I had seen prior to that, and i there a couple of them which are pretty devastating. I think I had seen Apocalypse now, and I think I had seen the deer the deer Hunter so these are very heavy heavy movies but but and I think. Um, the amount of drama, of heavy drama, that that and and, and and as you pointed out, how quickly it comes in a ninety-minute movie just keeps coming and coming and coming. That it's almost like you're overdosing on uh, opera. You know, you're just getting hit and hit and hit. And there are certain things that connect. Like there's certain very, um, like unforgettable moments, like when the mother dies after the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, and the, the Zalmi as a little boy, is like kneeling. Uh, over the bodies of all these these poor women that have jumped or burned and he says goodbye mama and suddenly he walks off with these vaudevillians that have become his sort of make there's a clown juggle i mean it's like such a like it's very strong and it's it's not it it could be schmaltz but it doesn't play that way and then you hear smiles and it smiles being sung by him as a boy. And it's a little boy singing a cappella, smiles. And there's something about that that always gets me. And, and the image itself, the two of them walking off into these empty New York streets at night, you know, having grown up in New York, there's a lot of New York in that movie. And there's a lot of nighttime, empty New York. And to me that he nails that. And, And Bakshi is a new yorker and he knows what that world is and i think he captures that very specifically through all the kind of periods and i had
0: a question about that because when this film was made wasn't new york still on the verge of
1: bankruptcy in 81 yes yes it was a garbage strewn yeah bankrupt yeah it was a it was a dirty violent place and um you know and and it was it was particularly bad in the in the late seventies and and early eighties. Even when I ended up going to NYU in the early eighties, it was still, you know, pretty much a dangerous city. It certainly hadn't been transformed into a, like a tourist attraction. Right. There was no M and M store yet. No, and there was none of that. And um, and many people think you know Ralph Bakshi is sort of like you know. It, they don't compare him to Scorsese, but in the sense that he does, he is a New York filmmaker. His stuff is very much about a lot of his stuff is very much about neighborhoods and and the and the and the characters that inhabit those those worlds. And um, you know, I think also because my you know my my mother side of the family are all Holocaust survivors and barely you know my my I'm I'm a you know first generation American and there's something about that whole experience of you know fleeing uh europe to come to america that 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 speaks to me too so there was a lot of just very like again it's felt it feels very operatic yes. uh and, and in a way as a as a kid i guess i was 15 when it came out um it just landed in, in it, you know in a way so much so that for example my sister who was even younger than me so it may have even made a, a bigger impression on her named her son ben I think specifically after the Benny character, which is wow. the which is the piano player that is, you know, killed in World War II when he's playing you know, Lily Marlene and the German shoots him, you know, and that whole bit. Yeah.
0: Every time you see a glimpse of hope, somebody's grown up, somebody's met someone, it drags you down. And I feel like the first third of the film is very successful in terms of of the Godfather epic feel um, Mm -hmm. that you described. Around the time where somebody answers a door and there's a box and they pick it up and they're like, don't open the box, and they blow up, I was kind of like, okay, this this is starting (laughs) to just, they're jamming everything (laughs) they can into it. Um, And I felt like some of those things (laughs) pulled me out where at the beginning it was it was a little more eloquent and as the film goes on yes it definitely starts unraveling i think in terms of its success with the story
1: yeah well i think you're right and i do think that there are certain um it's interesting because there are certain sequences you know like for example all the kind of prohibition violence gangster sort of that whole sequence but and, and again, a lot of he doesn't shy away from that he like dives right in like, those scenes are like very bloody as are the world war one and the and the world war ii sequences they're very grotesque and, and they're generally established by these they're the most sort of music video sort of sequences where they're full-blown montages you know set against a particular song uh, like you know the world war ii sequences sing 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 you know so you've got this and it's intercutting between rotoscope stuff of like the Nicholas brothers dancing and, and you're intercutting. And it's also interesting because he having also been raised on a lot of world war II movies, because my father was a world war II fanatic. He, I realized that there are certain sequences in the world war II sequence that are literally rotoscoped over pre-existing other war movies. You know, in other words, he didn't, even though he shot actually she shot, you know, his actors, his principal actors for all the, drama scenes of you know drama when it comes to these big set pieces where you're seeing like you know 100 guys landing at normandy you know he's rotoscoping over the longest day you know or for the world war one movie uh, the world war one sequence he's rotoscoping over like a george purpard world war one movie called the blue max and i'm like i'm actually identifying like wait that's a shot from that's a shot from the longest day did he steal that i think he stole i think he actually stole that stuff because it was almost like an early form of sampling. I think by the time you abstract something, I don't think he was stealing entire sequences, but he's stealing shots and he's kind of like saying, no one's going to know that I traced over right. this shot from the longest day. That's incredible to think about that. Yeah, because it's like, you know, because even like I think about um, the World War One sequence where you talk about him getting, he's the ass end of a horse in a vaudeville act and he gets shot through the throat. It, is, it's, it starts with these like air to air aerial shots of of um of German biplanes like descending on the USO camp where he's performing. And these are they also have a fluidity where you're like, wait a minute, you just didn't animate this out of the clear blue sky. No, the camera angles are incredible. Right. So so if you think about it, like taking a, you know, like the Blue Max was a very expensive World War One picture made in I think it was made in 66 which has this incredible aerial dogfight stuff if you take that stuff and you you tracing over that and then it it's going to have that sweep to it or that scale um so but i think the other thing is that i don't know how it was when you were a kid but you know my parents didn't necessarily play or inter- take the time to introduce me to important pieces of music let alone american music it, i mean there were certain things that i grew up hearing like you know, my father would, would like Aaron Copeland. So I had that in my head or, you know, there were certain bands you know, like Bread or whatever that my mom would play. But it wasn't like here you should listen to this is Benny Goodman and 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 this is George M. Cohan. And and this is, you know, and so I think that or this is Gershwin or Cole Porter. And I think that this movie was also an introduction for me to me uh, of a lot of very important music that I hadn't heard. Otherwise, like I would, I, you know, as time goes by, I knew from Casablanca, but I didn't, you know, I started to to see, oh, yeah, that's that's this music. I, and and, it does, and when you really look at the list, the soundtrack, it's like there's like, it's, like you said, this is like a ridiculous amount of music that's been licensed uh, for this movie. I have a list here.
0: Some of the artists were Gershwin, Dylan, Hendrix, Janice Joplin, Cole Porter, Louis Prima, Herbie Hancock, Dave Brubeck, Fabian. Art Blakey, Peter, Paul and Mary, Mamas and the Papas, The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, Jimmy Webb, uh, Lou Reed, Pat Benatar, Sex Pistols, Hart um, and uh, Leonard Skinner.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you've got, um, you know, even like Scott Joplin, you know, like I I had seen maybe I think I'd seen The Sting, but I hadn't heard Maple Leaf Rag particularly, you know, like like and and they're all like, you know, it's like it's it's. Like you said, it's overstuffed in almost every way, um, but it's never—it's never boring. It's just constantly like playing on your senses, both visually and orally. It's just kind of like you know, beating you over the head, you know, for ninety minutes, which I think, depending on your mood, is a is not a bad thing. <laughs> no, but it's funny. I think the film was really promoted
0: as a modern rock movie yeah if you look at the soundtrack no ragtime no it's all you know big brother no. and holding company and pat Benatar, and Jimi hendrix and the doors and
1: right that's definitely how it was sold yeah, for sure and i think that's probably it's funny enough that's probably why i was kind of like uh, this is, how interesting is this going to be right um as and it turned out that all the other stuff you know all the stuff that's set you know uh at the turn of the century and into um, the jazz age, to me, those are the most impressionable sequences in the movie for me. Like it's really, it's, I start to like lose as a kid, I started to lose my way once it sort of really delved into heroin addiction, you know, in the late sixties and early '70s, that's when it starts to feel like I'm, I'm out of my depth here. I don't know I don't have any frame of reference as a 15-year-old to this world. I haven't seen it in any other movies. I mean, I had seen war represented in, in old movies because my father, again, like you know, he would introduce me to a lot of classic Hollywood cinema. So I had seen gangster movies and I had seen war movies and I had seen movies that took place, you know, uh, uh, during Prohibition. And I, I had those references, but I had never seen somebody shooting smack in an apartment. I'd never seen somebody dragging their kid around, you know, while I made, while he made heroin deals. To me, that was like hardcore, even though it was an, even though it was a piece of animation, I I had forgotten all that at that point.
0: It's still very uncomfortable.
1: It's very uncomfortable. You know,
0: the character Tony is the third generation member of this family and he's a He's in it the most out of any character. You spend the most time with Tony. And he's also the most unlikable character in the film and the most unsympathetic. So, you know, everything he does, you know, whether he's having a a one-time fling in a cornfield to have an illegitimate son who shows up later, or I feel like by that point in the film... It just loses the plot a bit. It starts doing that thing that I talked about earlier where it's all about chance. So of course you're walking down the street playing a harmonica and somebody goes, Hey, that's pretty good, man. <laughs> Why don't you
1: come jam with
0: us? And then doesn't
1: that, doesn't that how it works in, in, yeah. in, in, uh, in your world, Chris, that's like, yeah. how, as a
0: as a songwriter, five minutes there... later. Oh, yeah. we've got a record deal. We got the, and then five minutes later, we're the number one band in the country. Five minutes later, They're all addicts. And some of the dialogue in this part really made me feel like maybe they didn't do any research on the language or or the culture or the actual reality of drug addiction. Because they're saying lines like, you're pulling a Houdini and she's pulling freak out city. And it's just it's so corny and forced and and way out and um, that those sequences, if you don't know anything about drug culture and you're a kid, probably right, right. was maybe a deterrent or scared the shit out of you or whatever, because the drug sequences are long and brutal and yes. very colorfully ugly is the only way yes. I could describe it. Um, I was also really surprised that they were able to get the likeness of Jimi Hendrix in this film when he's doing Purple Haze. Yeah, it's one of the few instances where it's not some fiction fiction character being rotoscoped singing a Janice Joplin song. It is literally Jimi Hendrix playing Purple Haze in a in a in a very like stretched out psychedelic montage. Right, I. I'm really curious how he did that, because I know he got the rights to all this music really cheap. He was able to acquire the rights to the soundtrack for under $1 million. He got all of this. People kind of trusted him with this vision and his story and his past, especially with um, Fritz the Cat being a cult thing. There was kind of a a way in for him to be like, I'm going to do something different. I want to do an adult drama and I want to use your music to tell it. Mm-hmm. But still, I was really surprised that the, the estate of Jimi Hendrix, who was notoriously tight with album releases and unreleased songs that somehow yeah. this squeaked through.
1: Well, it's weird. Yeah. I think it was like, like you said, I think it was based on his backsheet sort of rep as an as an animator, as an artist that, that people just thought, well, this is, got to be cool or at least interesting Two, i think it was limited if i'm not mistaken i think it was limited rights wise to the theatrical release and since this happened like right on the edge of home video if there's a reason why the film was basically um you couldn't find it for years no. because they because the rights were all tied up in other words i guess when it came down to home video and all sort of other forms of, of home entertainment that that had not been part of the original clearances deal. So they had to go. So they just said, forget it. It's, it we can't release it because we can't afford we, we have to renegotiate with everybody. Yes. And I think that's ultimately what happened, because if funny enough, then this is just purely coincidence. I think the I actually am Facebook friends with Ralph Bakshi, and he posted something like this week that says American Pop is now out on Blu-ray. Like this week? Oh, crazy! Uh, which is really funny because I mean I don't know when this will will air, but but it's just the irony is that and it has existed. I know there was a DVD and there was a V. I remember when the VHS came out. Yes, I had the VHS. It
0: came out in 1998, so right. a couple years after it opened, and it was a big
1: deal. Yeah, it's like 20 years after the movie is you know is out is almost 20 years. So so it was out of print. I remember I had taped it. When I, It was on HBO or something, you know, like, and I remember taping it, and that's how we watched it. My sister and I used to re-watch it on our own. That was such a rite of passage. Yeah. Taping stuff off cable. If you're
0: lucky enough to have cable, that's where I, I was able to re-watch Fast Spender Films yeah. and Fellini. They were just throwing content on there because they, needed they it. just needed it. That's right.
1: That's and right. And so
0: um, I remember the stuntman seemed to be oh, yeah, no, all this, the time yeah, on yeah. the movie channel.
1: That's an adult and, movie. And, I mean, it's Yeah, uh, and you're
0: really confused when you're, you know, 10. Right. Your parents are not paying attention. Yeah. And I feel like I can imagine you at a young age also trying to put this story together. But I think it's amazing that it affected your family.
1: It's one of two things happens when you when you have, see a movie as a kid and it like changed your life and then you look at it as an adult and if if it if it's it, unfortunately sometimes you can look at those movies and see it through different eyes, adult an adult's eyes, all of a sudden, and recognize. oh, wait a minute. This is not very good. Or this is, this is not what I remembered it to be. Um, right. But I think with American pop, it it has like quasi because it's animated because the format is what it is because it's trying to do so much in such a weird way that it sustains this sort of dreamlike quality. It, it, and there are certain, like you said, there are certain things that are corny. There are certain things that don't quite work. There are certain lines of dialogue that don't seem to be authentic. And yet, still as an overall, it 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 still triggers those things in me. It's funny because like Valerie, my wife, I tried to show it to her uh, a couple of times. And, and mm-hmm. even today in, in anticipation of our sitting down to talk about it, I said, like, yeah, let's look at the opening. And it's amazing. She just had... This absolutely like she just finds it repellent. She's like, this is just ugly. This I don't like the colors. I don't like the the illustrations. Is the yes. the way they're using the music is stupid. You know, and Valerie comes. I tried to show her a bit of the Sex Pistols bit because Valerie was part of the punk scene. You know, she was part of hardcore. You know, in its when it was hardcore in the in the early eighties, and she was like, this is bullshit. You know, this is not. Yes. And, and and in a way, she's kind of right because. You know, I, I, that certainly wasn't my experience. I mean, like for me as a little like kid who like, like I recognize Pat Benatar. I, ooh, I was like, that Pat that, that's edgy. Like that's Pat Benatar.
0: Yeah. Sex p- for children. Yeah.
1: Sex Pistols to me was like, you know, like I, I wasn't going near that shit at, at that age. Right.
0: That's devil's music.
1: But yeah, it, it, it's, it's all time and place. It's like that movie just hit at a certain time where I was ready to, to, to be moved by that kind of thing. And um I, I, it just kind of popped into my head because I hadn't thought about it in a long time until you kind of brought up the format of the format of yeah. the show. So, well, there's a couple
0: things as as it as the film starts to close out. Um, you, I guess you call it the third act with Tony and his illegitimate son just happens to show up backstage and says to his <laughs> dad, "Teach me how to write songs." You right, know, and then they're all said and cut to them in a bleak New York City. Um, well, first, he has a freak out in a cornfield and that foot that is a very upsetting, scene. very
1: upsetting scene. Well, it's some it's set to isn't it set to summertime, right? Isn't it? Isn't it? I think it's Janis yes. Joplin singing summertime. Yeah. which That combination by itself. That's a very powerful song when you juxtapose that over a a junkie realizing that he's been a father all these years and, and left this woman with a child and who knows what, and he and the performance by ron thompson who plays both tony and um pete grown up he plays both voices both of those characters um you know he's howling like in agony you know whether it's a com- it's a combination of uh realizing you know what he's done and also being out of his mind on drugs but again as a kid watching this adult sort of have a flipping out howling and pain, emotional pain, while Janice Joplin wails summertime is pretty fucked up,
0: you know? Yeah, it's really an effective, upsetting scene. And, and I, too, have a visceral reaction to this film. I, I'm not drawn into the, the colors or the choice of animation. And even Bakshi talked about rotoscoping is really hard to get the emotional content right. So there's often a distance to some of the emotion and some of the facial Mm -hmm. um, movements or things that you want to see happen in a scene because it's kind of gelatinous and it's melting and it's moving and and Mm -hmm. fluctuating. But that scene kind of slows everything down. He's moving in slow motion and he's just like in a silent scream and it's kind of just circling him. It's really effective. I thought it was one of the... Better scenes, especially
1: with the Tony character. Well, it's interesting. I think I think you bring up an interesting point because the slowness of that moment. Actually, I think the rotoscoping, because I think what he's referring to is that, you know, you can trace a you can trace movement, physical movement, which is why again, like Snow White moves the way she does, and Sleeping Beauty, and Alice in Wonderland moves the way, and they move very realistically. Yet the 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 faces of those Disney characters. Remain more of a illustration quality. They're not. They're not. They're not meant to be um, anatomically uh, authentic. And so, when you, I think when you juxtapose physical movement with an, a traditional animated face, that actually is more believable than trying to duplicate the inflection in a human face by tracing. And I think that's what he's talking about. Is like, which is why I think in in in. The best, most emotional moments in American pop actually come when people are passive, where it's just somebody looking, where they're actually not moving at all, which just happens in life. You know, when someone is frozen or someone is thinking about something, and that's when the power of the actual illustration, you know, the power of of just an individual frame actually communicates more than, you know, rippling, you know, flesh or whatever. Um, Yeah, I agree. It's still better than, like, it's still better than, it's still... I think more effective than the uncanny valley effect, which happens when you see stuff. like I just watched the first 25 minutes of the new Indiana Jones movie, which they were raving about about the de aging uh, of. And I and we were Val and I were watching this, and it was just like, what the fuck is this? It's like, no, it does not work. It's not real. It's like a weird dead. <laughs> it's either it's a it's a it's a cross between watching, you know, somebody else play a video game, right. But it's not a it's not a living person. It's um it's a mask of somebody, no matter how, you know, photographically authentic it is. It isn't a living person, so it's weird. I think rotoscoping is not can get can actually because it's cell animation gets away from that a little bit. It's not like it's asking you to believe it's an actual photograph of something. When you do get into that actual, they still you know whether it's the Irishman or you know, with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny and a number of other things, it's not there yet. And I do think that that's like, I think it's, you know, it doesn't quite work, so. Yeah, is it going to
0: be the uh, de-aging of Harrison Ford or the rotoscoping of Harrison Ford? It's a kind of, it's a hard one to pick out. They're both kind (laughs) of evil, things I don't want to see. Well, if you're not into spoilers, you've only had 42 years to watch this film. So either skip this or stick it out because I'm going to talk about the ending of this film Uh Um, so Tony asks his son Pete if he can hawk his guitar to you know go get drugs and then Pete just sits alone on a bench in New York City waiting night comes day comes then somebody shows up and says hey Pete yeah your dad wanted to give you this and it's a, a package of heroin right yeah yeah it
1: gives him drugs yeah to sell
0: and then a fade to or a, a cross fade of pete as an adult and he's right
1: he becomes the yeah, ages and suddenly he's still yeah now he's a man
0: Right. yes and he's kind of a blonde-haired lou reed type right and then during a, a montage of the sex pistols which is interesting it's the only track on the soundtrack that was not a licensed version that's not the sex pistols doing that song oh
1: uh, weird yeah i think that's what valerie was responding to She says that's not that that's not yeah. you know yeah exactly
0: so it's funny that the sex pistols still were like no no
1: sex pistols it's were kind no. of incredible <laughs> which i think is, is really amazing <laughs> that
0: they're the one band who are still like no way right. um and he he he's dealing drugs to all the punk rockers and the new waivers. And he's kind of the coolest person around. And then right. he shows up in a recording studio all of a sudden, which is the, the actors, you know who that is in the film playing the punk rockers?
1: Uh, no, Oh that, no, actually. Well, it's like fear, right? It, it is. It's fear, the band it, fear. Yeah. So like right. leaving and right. uh,
0: Durf scratch. I can't remember all their names. Right. Uh, Spit sticks. Right. I'm, I'm getting close to knowing all their names. And. He's there to do the deal, the drugs, and but he's like, "Give me a shot. I want to play you a song." And they're like, "Nah." And he's like, "Well, I'm out of here with this stuff." They're like, "No, no, come back, come back." Right. So this cool looking—I <laughs> know, I know where you're going with this Lou <laughs> Reed-esque guy who's with this punk band who is Fear right. goes over the piano and he plays. And what does he play? Yeah, it's uh, not what you would expect. Night, night moves. He plays "Night Moves" by Bob Seger, right? And it's so out
1: of context. It doesn't terms, work at all. It doesn't work at all. And this, and this, been it's been building. The whole, the whole movie is building to one of these people is going to be a star. Yes, and this is going to be the song. This is the song. There's these really haunting still
0: <laughs> watercolors. I can't tell of yeah. they, they show these producers who are like fat cat producers just right. standing there or or sitting there behind the glass in the control booth, no motion. It's just a right. it's just a painting with their mouth open listening to the song. Then it cuts back to him animated doing it. And then it cuts to them and one of them standing up pointing like we've got a hit kind of vibe. Right. That's right. Cut to him playing a place as big as Madison Square Garden. Right. Just He's on stage. He's a star. Like, immediately <clears throat> after playing a song. And he does a medley of songs. What does this cool punk new rocker heroin seller do? His medley is Carl Perkins' Blue Suede Shoes, then Devil with the Blue Dress, and Hearts Crazy on You are, right. is the mashup. Again, I was like, you... <laughs> blew it like this is like in terms of the story and believability and and wanting right. to care care about something it was so i i couldn't tell if if they were running out of music money to in terms of being like well we need to wrap this up we we can only afford yeah. a, a 91 page script so we gotta we gotta really right. we gotta finish this up we gotta finish it up <laughs> and hearts popular let's put them in but that this person doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the character. No. No. And it's just, it, it deflates the premise of the film. Everyone's working and dying and and suffocating and just so much drama. And then it's just night moves. Hey, it's just it's so easy. You know, I just showed up in the studio and I just showed him the song, and it it it
1: really deflated all this vietnam footage right of right assassinations yeah it's pretty simplistic it's it's yeah i mean I, I agree i mean yes i mean when you think about it the yes the believability of just you know him getting his shot i mean i guess i don't know but maybe i was led to believe that as a possibility it's i don't know whether it's a Stars born or the muppet movie it's like i guess everybody's got one song and if they play it if it's the right moment then you'll be a star kind of thing and you know and it happens in movies and it happens you know it happened there it happens here but i think you're right i think one of the one of the reasons why it it doesn't work on top of that is that it is bob Seeger. it's funny because i think in many i i remember hearing or reading an interview with bakshi where he talked about like this i fucking hate Seeger. i hate that it was night moves it shouldn't have been night moves and 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 I think he was actually explaining just what you said. It's like we ran out of money, and we couldn't get what what he wanted. Which I never knew exactly what it, what he wanted it to be, but nice. it does feel like. And then by the way, you know he, he had to commit to it. I mean, he, he commits to it because it's a rotoscoped right performance. You know of night uh, of night moves and. Um, We'll yeah it, it's just not yeah you're a your heroin dealer and you're singing bob see any kind to of fear or the equivalent of like right. hey give this
0: ch- a chance and like the band all of a gonna be like this mohawked weirdo band's gonna be right like, yeah all right awesome yeah that's great um yeah yeah it's well, true. It, it brings up a, a question that i wanted to ask in terms of this as a film that is music drives this film in terms mm-hmm. of its storytelling and the montage and yeah. um the the highs and lows of this four generation story. Are there any songs that you could imagine could have been in this film that would have been a better representation than what they put in?
1: That's a good question. Um actually you know I I, I I'm I can't think of at least for the first two thirds of the movie. I can't think of um, you know I can't think of anything that would would communicate the time or place better than what's what kind of paints that whole from like 1910 through the through the 50s. I guess when you get into the 60s and the 70s, there's like a there's a so much more that could be experimented with. Um, there's no Zeppelin. There's no Beatles. There's no uh, i mean you do get specific stuff like Lou Reed like you pointed out and you do right. get um you know like you know like something like summertime you know um is it is very powerful um but no i i i just think i was i had the same reaction as you did i feel like it just sort of petered out um at the end with the wrong choices and i think I mean, I guess the key thing is, is that if the movie does sort of completely explode at, at the night moves point, what what could he have played? I mean, I actually, I would put that to you. You know, you're the like, what would you what would you put in there? Well, the thing is, the film
0: is not full of obscure tracks. Right. No, no, they are no, they there. It's it, the film is made so that even if you don't know a jazz song, you know, Dave Brubeck. Take That's five. right, exactly. Even if you don't know folk, you know Peter, Paul, and Mary, right? And Dylan, and even with the ragtime stuff, it is the most iconic, popular representation Correct. of artists. So, you know, your heart goes, Oh, that'd be cool if it was a Gang of Four song, you right. know? <laughs> right, but in terms of what it could do, I think a Lou Reed song would have been kind of amazing, or a Bowie song,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that would make a him- True. Like if it was a Bowie song, that would like make sense in terms of like what you want is something that transcends almost everything that's come before.
0: Yes. And also
1: is believable in that he's been so heavily influenced by drug culture that it's in him. Yes. You know, it's in his DNA. So that should all come out. You're right. That should all come. I mean, with Bowie, it would come out in a more loving, sort of benevolent way. Um, he is a kind of a dangerous character. So the question is, is there a Bowie equivalent? I guess Lou Reed, I guess. um, Right. American equivalent. Right. I I guess guess it would have to be like Iggy. Would it be Iggy Pop or something like that?
0: Yeah, maybe Iggy Pop, you know, like something that has an edge. But yeah, that's that's what I would say. Something that also feels like East Coast, New York. I mean, Iggy Pop's from the Midwest, but still.
1: Or Jim Carroll, or even Jim Carroll. Like if it had, you know, if he had, you know, like that. Yes, that would have been really cool. The Jim Carroll band as an ending would have been like, I would have, that fits almost exactly with that character. Absolutely, that's really a good,
0: good thought. Jim Carroll would have been fantastic because he was a poet, Right. he was a New Yorker guy, you know, music had a lot of energy Mm -hmm. and also it was very, you know, very, it was real-time drug um, action. Um, In terms of who he was. That would have been better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. We cracked it. We cracked it. (laughs) We solved it. We should.
1: I should just message Ralph back to you now and go, can you just put in Jim (laughs) Carroll? Yes. On it. Take the Blu-rays off the shelf. (laughs) Well, I
0: always end every interview with the same question, but I tailor it to um, the movie. So, On a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being the lowest and 10 being the highest, how many number one hit songs do you give this film if Pete had to write them? (laughs) Does he get one hit or up to 10 hits? He's got the goods.
1: All right, so I would give it a 7. I would give it a seven out of ten. Seven hit songs from Pete. Yes. He seems like he's got that in him. Yeah. But that's just, you know, it's a very subjective thing. I might even give it an eight, but that's because it's me, you know, like for somebody else. Like my wife, she would give it a zero, you know, so it's, (laughs) uh, you know. But, um, yes, that's my, that's what I
0: think. Well, thank you so much, Jack. (gasps) This was great. Thanks so much for doing this.
1: Oh no, thank you so much for having me. I mean, the last thing I expected to do was sort of get into the nitty gritty of a movie I saw when I was fifteen, but uh, it—I'm glad—I'm glad your your format actually allowed for that. So, thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you soon. My pleasure. See you, man. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to Revolutions Per Movie. We release new episodes every Thursday, so be sure to search for the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. And if you've enjoyed this, it would mean a lot to me if you would rate and review it as well. You can follow us on social media at Revolutions Per Movie and also find out more information about our various guests in the episode show notes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.
1: Bye!